Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, September 6th. My name is Carl Michael Henneking, and I'm hosting this show today. PayPal launched a USD-based stablecoin last month. Solana Pay has been added as a payment option on Shopify, so users will be able to pay for stuff on Shopify using USDC. Circle's USDC is in trials for cross-border payments with the software giant SAP. And Tether, the leading stablecoin, reported exceptionally good results. Its operational profits exceeded 1 billion US dollars in Q2 only. On top, MasterCard and Visa made moves, significant moves, in the crypto payment space very recently. So it's time to talk about crypto payment and stablecoins. And I'm more than happy to have Jonas Groß with me today. Jonas serves as the Chief Operating Officer of Etonic, a company specializing in payments and digital assets. And he's well known in the European crypto community as a speaker on conferences, as a podcast host, and as a chairman of the Digital Euro Association. A very warm welcome, Jonas. Thank you very much, Carmichael, for the um, invite. I'm really glad to be here today and talk um, with you about this very important topic, I think. Super. It's a big pleasure to have you on the show. Jonas, you are the chairman of the Digital Euro Association. What are you doing at the Digital Euro Association and, and what's your mission? Yeah. So, first of all, we are completely independent of like ECB, Eurosystem, central banks or other European think tanks. So we are independent. We are a non-profit um, association based out of Frankfurt. And basically, you know, we came up with this idea two and a half or three years ago where we have seen people talk about digital currency, CBDC, crypto, and they talk sitting in the same room, talk to each other, but they mean completely different things. What we basically have found is that it needs kind of a think tank around these digital currency related topics because we don't have this. We have think tanks around, you know, banking, banking stuff, consumer rights, human rights, stuff like that. But for digital currencies, we didn't see this in Europe. And this is why we founded the Digital Euro Association here in Germany and focus on three different core pillars, I would say. First one, this is where we come from, education. So we host a physical conference once a year in Frankfurt. We have online webinars, podcasts, working groups. So it's really about educating both the general public, but also the people that are in the payment space and maybe, you know, don't have the time to monitor the CBDC mm -hmm. and stablecoin market a whole day because they need to work on other stuff. The second thing is we wanted to build out a community, which just is, is united with the same passion for digital currencies with, of course, different backgrounds. So like tech folks, legal experts, economists. It's worked out pretty well. So I think now the community has more than 900 people and part of it, I think 60 companies, including fintech, big tech, industrial players, and also a few central banks. And the third pillar is really influencing the debate. So we are more and more in discussions with policymakers. We had a meeting with the German Ministry of Finance a few weeks ago, talking to politicians in Brussels, to central banks, because we think, you know, we are in a good position because we are very deep into the CBDC and stablecoin related topics also to provide inputs for politicians and important stakeholders that are maybe not that far in the journey when it comes to digital currencies. That, that sounds impressive, especially the scope you are you're covering with the Digital Euro Association. And to you personally, uh, um, how did you come to the crypto space? Was this originally driven from a, from a scientific angle? You see this for PhD or, or, or how did this work out? Yeah, great question. And was definitely a few years back. So I think it was 2017, 2018. So actually before my PhD time, it was during my master's. And I remember I read an article in the in German newspaper, I think it was Handelsblatt, about that 
one Bitcoin now costs more than one ounce of gold. So like, you know, 1,500 euros, something like that. And I read this and was like thinking like, what is this? Like, is this, this needs to be a scam, right? How can this be something which, which is not even backed be worth more than something which is like gold, you know, reputable, mm -hmm. very well known, people love it, it looks good, things like that. <laughs> and then I went down in this very famous rabbit hole, right? So I read the white paper, I read books, talked to lots of people, and I was, and back in the time I was uh, in Copenhagen for a semester abroad, so also had some time to do, to do these things. And then I was just super fascinated because with my background as an economist, I'm you know, always interested in all this money stuff. So money supply, money demand, the future of money. And for me, this was just a very, very, you know, novelty here. And I still am very optimistic on Bitcoin as well. And yeah, this is how all this journey started. I think, yeah, as I said, six, seven years ago, approximately. Uh, now you are very, very deep in the, in the rabbit hole. And, and once you're in, or anyone who is in, they never, never crawl out, I, I would say. That's cool. I have one more personal question for you. I read in an interview with you that other than Germany, you would love to live in Iceland. How come? <laughs> You're very well prepared to this episode, I have to say. <laughs> the, the reason was I was there actually last year on vacation and I just loved it. You know, it was a super beautiful country with lots of things to see. So for me, very impressive. And what I also really liked is the mindset of people. So, I mean, here often I have in Germany the case, it's for me the case, people are often complaining about things. Mm -hmm. And also the media often report about things that, you know, it's just a lot of noise and a lot of bad news. And what I really appreciated in Iceland, like people were always happy. They reported, you know, about the media wrote about specific birds that came to Iceland. So it was just a different attitude and, and, and kind of mindset, which I really appreciated. And I think this is also one reason why I really enjoyed, yeah, being there for a few weeks, unfortunately just for vacation. Okay, cool. Okay, let's now get the ball rolling with regards to crypto payment. So the crypto payment space is essentially very broad and, and has a lot of different uh, facets. Uh, so there are crypto payments based on volatile assets such as Bitcoin and using the Lightning Network. Governance issue central bank digital currencies such as China did with the digital yuan. That's the second route. And the third route are stable coins. Stable coins are packed to fiat currencies, normally the US dollar, and issued by financial service companies. In this podcast, we want to focus on exactly these kind of private uh, stable coins and leave the other two things like CBDCs, uh, Bitcoin, payments, ETC, out of scope. But even with private stable coins, I think we have at least two basic groups or clusters of use cases. One are retail consumer um, use cases. And the other are industrial or kind of B2B use cases. And we will touch upon both of them today. Let's start with the consumer retail uh, route. So a little bit of provocative question. Uh, we can pay with credit cards. We can pay with Apple Pay, with Google Pay. We have PayPal. So what do we need crypto payments for? Why are they needed in a retail or, or consumer environment? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right question you are asking, because always when you think about, you know, which solutions they, these forms of money can address or which use cases they can serve, we need to think about what the value propositions are. And I think for stablecoins, one very important aspect is the aspect of fees. So today in the cross-border business, for example, you have on average, according to the World Bank, 6% of transaction fees, which is just massive, right? And this is because there are a lot of, lot of, lot of intermediaries involved with different providers with corresponding banks, you know, that, that hold foreign currency accounts for you. So it's a lot of different intermediaries. And with, with stablecoins or with blockchain technology in general, you can basically 
get rid of lots of the intermediaries and you can automate a lot, which in the end leads to the fact that you can have lower fees. So I think for the cross-border setup, this is very, very important. And this similarly is also important for a domestic setup. And I think this is why also companies, and you talked about this like PayPal and also, you know, MasterCard Visa are looking into using stablecoins for their payment rates, basically, because it's just more efficient because less intermediaries are involved. So I think that's very, very important as a first aspect. And the second aspect is more on the merchant side, to be honest, is the aspect of settlement. Because today, if we have credit card payments or PayPal payments, they often just reach the merchant after a few days, partly even weeks, and then there can be chargebacks. So the merchant actually doesn't know how much money he or she gets at some point in time. And with stablecoins that are kind of settled immediately, so you have the money there, you can even put this into your self-custody wallet, so then really nobody you know, can, can take this uh, in any form from you. And I think that's really substantial advantages than stablecoins can play in this regard. And I think also, I mean, you're right that there are lots of different payment methods today, but I envision the world where the retail customer doesn't know that a stablecoin is used for the settlement, right? Because it, it just wants to see that dollar or euros are used for, for paying with that. But whatever payment rail, you know, I'm also using emails and I don't know how all these protocols work. And I think mm -hmm. that's exactly the way how the future should look like actually from a customer perspective. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I think you're very clear about the, the, the two main advantages in the consumer and retail space. And I think that's also one reason why PayPal came up with this new stablecoin, PYUSD. So to put it into perspective, PayPal has more than 430 million users. They have a 50% market share in payment processing and they serve like 30 million merchants in their network. So this PYUSD, how does it work and what use cases does PYSD support? The same you already mentioned or is there anything special about this stablecoin? Yeah, so this paper stablecoin is very similar to existing um, US dollar backed stablecoins. So it basically uses the money that it gets from customers and puts it into a reserve, which is a construct out of, you know, US government bonds, US bank deposits. So very similar to, compared to the existing stablecoins. We see today an even similar technology. So it's an ERC-20 token. So it's based on, Ethere on Ethereum. So also similar to the other stablecoins. I think where the key difference is, and this is what you already mentioned, Carmichael, is the network size. Because ultimately money is about network. So it's just very promising to pay with money if it's accepted in a lot of places. And of course, people just accept it if people use it for payments, right? And PayPal had, has this immense network of both merchants and end, end users. So it has just touch points with the customers um, on, a, on a really, really great um, and large, uh, large basis. What, how this stablecoin should work, it should actually have like three different functions. One is P2P payments. So I pay you, for example, with a stablecoin. I mean, not with a paper balance, but with a stablecoin. Again, it's just a different what's happening in the background. It's still the euro, like the US dollar in the setup because we're talking about a US dollar mm -hmm. stablecoin. Then you can withdraw the stablecoin and put this onto your own crypto wallet, right? So like your hardware wallet or to your crypto portfolio. So you can cash this kind of out, let's say. I mean, so withdraw it, it's the better word. And the third function is you can pay with this at the point of sale. So where PayPal today is accepted for payments, you can then also use this um, the stablecoin to pay. And I think that's, that's very natural and also fits well, like the advantages um, I um, alluded to before. In terms of the use cases, so it's for P2P payment, it's for point of sale payments, and, and this is the third aspect, which I think is really, really interesting, it should also be a form of money that can be served as, you know, money on chain for all these blockchain based use cases. So this is what PayPal said. It's not just internal, the PayPal system, 
but it should also be made accessible to the whole ecosystem. So you can trade it on exchanges. You can maybe include it into DeFi applications. And this is then super powerful if you have a network of millions of users and can even have this as money for the crypto ecosystem. And this is why I think that this is really an important move from PayPal because this network together with this approach and this openness can, I think, really be a good mid or long-term bet that is PayPal, is PayPal currently taking on. So they are kind of expanding their scope of business with that beyond their traditional business with like reaching into the crypto space. I mean, stable coins can also be used for margin trading, ETC, and this is a big use case for, for stable coins and crypto. And once crypto grows, I think that's a new revenue stream. for PayPal. Exactly. And they were really clear about that, that they, this is like the first step to enter the digital asset or another step to enter the digital asset ecosystem. And in parallel, I think this was not recognized in the media or not getting the attention that it deserves is PayPal also now integrated with or collaborated with Ledger. So one of the leading providers for hardware wallets on the on-ramp. So this means currently we know for people that are not deep into the crypto ecosystem, it's an issue to get your euros into uh, or your dollars into the crypto ecosystem. It's really painful. But if you can do this with PayPal, so many people have a PayPal account. You mentioned it. And, and that's, I think, super important because if this first mile problem and last mile problem, how it's typically called, can be solved like that, that's, I think, massive for, for mainstream adoption. I think it's not the only thing we need for mainstream adoption, but it's a very important puzzle piece in this context. And this PYUSD is issued by Paxos, Paxos Trust Company from New York. What's the relationship between Paxos and PayPal? Yeah, so Paxos is, as I said, like the, the issuer. So Paxos is also regulated in New York. So they have the respective licenses to issue the stablecoin. They also do the custody of the stablecoin, so hold the reserve. They also have basically an agreement with PayPal that they always need to sell these tokens for an exchange rate of one to each other. So it's kind of the, the situation that Paxos is like is liable in this regard and it seems kind of a, a white label solution basically. Mm -hmm. And Paxos did this in the past with Binance. So they also issued the Binance USD stablecoin. They also have their own stablecoin. So they are, they are just providing, I would say, stablecoins as a service. And in this context, they did it together with PayPal. So pay PayPal provides the brand and the network and the technology, the regulatory compliance, ETC is all provided by Paxos. Very interesting Correct. business model. I mean, I have a question on this later on. We'll come back to this. But that's, uh, yeah, stablecoin as a service. Yeah, cool thing. But what's in it for, for PayPal? Okay, they can expand their business. You all already talked about it. Anything else? Why are they doing that? Yeah, so it's definitely that they want to just go into the digital assets ecosystem, new revenue streams, new business models. That's the first thing. The second thing is also today, stablecoin business is just very promising. You know, you mentioned like the, the um, profits that Tether made just in one quarter. So if you currently have the reserve and invest this into 5% remunerated government bonds, you have a very high reward. So it's just a very, very attractive business model to issue an own stablecoin if you also have the reach and the network. And I think the other thing is really also to explore opportunities to bring down the costs for cross-border payments, as I said. So, I mean, currently even PayPal is charging very high fees for, for the corridors. But if you can maybe lower the cost internally for settlement because you have less intermediaries while maintaining your margin, you could, you know, have a better offer for your customers while your margin stays the same. And I think that's also why this is kind of not a bad move when it comes to the cross-border dimension of that. But of course, for this, we would need more stable coins on the network, you know, but I think that's kind of the long-term vision that we might see here. 
You talked about a little bit the difference between a PYUSD and the other dominant centralized stablecoins like Circle or Tether. It's clear we'll have this um, can benefit from a network effect in PayPal. But is there anything which speaks for Tether and USDC? Or do these guys now really need to worry? <laughs> Good question. And I like how you put, put out the question. Let's start like that. So I think the stablecoins are technologically very similar based on Ethereum um, ha having already existing networks. So I think an advantage for USDC and Tether is they are out there with a, a volume that is also massive. So they are out there in the market. And I mean, for USDC, they, we think we'll talk about this later on. They, they are partnering, for example, um, with some providers like Visa now on, on these topics, right? So you should not, I think, underestimate USDC and say now ah, PayPal launches this and all others will die. I don't think so because they really did great work in the last years, even if the market capitalization went down. But I think in the end, more stable coins will be used and not just one will survive. Ultimately, it will be network for sure. But I think there are reasons to have more providers. I'm not sure if there's a reason to have like 100 different dollar stable coins because then it's getting complicated. But I think there will be more than uh, just one stablecoin uh, on the market. Yeah, and I think, I mean, at, at the moment, they have kind of a first mover advantage, USDC and, and Tether. And exactly. They, and additionally, and, maybe to, to, to add just one uh, sentence, is they are also already on other chains. So PayPal exactly. just does this on Ethereum mm -hmm. and, you know, Tether and USD, uh, USDT and USDC are on other chains as well. So that's also an advantage they are definitely having. Yeah, I think USDC just signed another six or circle, another six blockchains. They are now then on 15 blockchains very soon. And obviously on blockchains, which are not as expensive as Ethereum. So they need to have an eye on PYUSD, but I think they don't need to get afraid at the moment. You already mentioned Visa, Visa and MasterCard. Will they follow PayPal's route? I mean, in principle, they could easily use Paxos as a white label platform as well. You think that they would do the same or, or what's what their engagement in, in the crypto space? Yeah, I think that's kind of an open question still. I've, I've seen recently, I've seen different different moves. So for Visa, as I mentioned before, they are now having a, co a cooperation with USDC and some acquirers to offer this payments. So here it seems to me that they don't want to issue an own stablecoin, but just use, you know, the proven one, this, which is USDC. So I don't see this in the, the short term future, let's say. And for MasterCard, they recently launched uh, the multi-token network, which is also an initiative to bring different tokens also on the MasterCard ecosystem. So I think that's super impressive because we do see more and more moves now bringing tokens like stablecoins into the MasterCard Visa ecosystems, which are, of course, massive. And so I think that's very, very positive. And that's also the interesting thing with the bear market. Nobody cares. Like some, some media talk about this. But mm -hmm. nobody realizes that this is happening. And in the bull market, you know, every, everybody would write about that. So that's, yeah. I think, also interesting and important that we talk about things like this today. And if they have their own stablecoin on the radar, to be honest, I just don't know. But in the short term, it seems to me that they are having different approaches in, in mind for that. Yeah, but both are, as you rightly said, they are engaged definitely in, in crypto payments. It, it's on their agenda. I think MasterCard recently launched with Nexo together a dual mode card for credit and debit card building and with credit and debit card capabilities. And you have the option to earn rewards on crypto as well. So they are moving. It's interesting to see your view on this, that you don't expect them at least a short term to go this exactly the same route as, pay, as PayPal did. Very, very interesting. 
Uh, we, we talk about UCC, Tether, and PYUSD. These are all so-called centralized stablecoins. They're issued and controlled by a company. Uh, same theoretically is, is with CBDC, so central bank digital uh, currencies. They are controlled and issued by governance, but they are also decentralized stablecoins, which are normally governed by DAOs, so decentralized autonomous organizations. The most prominent one is DAI here, which already ranks third in, in market cap. What's your view on DAI as a means of crypto payment? I think the beauty about stablecoins and the whole crypto ecosystem is that everything is open, is open source. So you can look into that and you can also, in this context, from a co consumer and client perspective, decide what you prefer to use. So what I've heard a lot also as a reaction to the PayPal stablecoin was, because the smart contract is, on, is online, it's available, it's open source, was like, Oh, there is a function you can, you know, freeze funds and you can even wipe funds off for some reasons. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the people were horrified, but like, what is this? It has nothing to do with crypto. And I, I would agree that that's like not the initial ideology you had behind that, but that's something you need to provide if you are regulated. So it's just a requirement you need to fulfill as Paxos in order to be allowed to operate. And if you don't like such functions and such centralized elements, then you can use, you know, decentralized variants like, like DAI. So for me, it's really about the, the, the diversity you have. And then really everybody, every dev can decide what to use. And yeah, I think this is something, you know, which should, should everybody for him or herself decide on what's preferred in this context. Okay, I think the, the traditional world prefers to have a specific contract partner, which they know and not necessarily a DAO, that I think gives USCC and the centralized stablecoins a kind of edge. But within the, as you rightly said, within the DeFi system, most people like DAI, like DAI very much because of its decentralization. Yeah. Okay. Well, we talked more about the consumer use cases and about B2B or industrial use cases for crypto payments. I mentioned in the beginning that the German software giant SAP is kind of working with USDC as a stablecoin to test cross-border payments. This is one use case in the B2B context. Are there others? How important are they compared to the retail use cases, in your opinion? Yeah. So definitely cross-border is one important aspect. The other one, and I think this is also something you talk in this podcast often with this focus on digital assets, is really the, to be this, the kind of settlement asset for, for example, securities. So what do I mean by that? I mean by that we are in a world where, where processes for issuing securities are getting more and more digitalized, more and more distributed. But what you currently don't have is you don't have ways on a chain to settle this in real time. And the great thing with smart contracts is that you could basically, if you have like an asset and a token, like the payment on the same chain, for example, both on Ethereum, that you can basically directly swap uh, them with each other, like delivery versus payment. So basically in the same second, you transfer the asset, but just if you get the money in return, but you, you don't need an intermediary and trust for that, which is expensive, but you can just do this automated in the same second. And I think this kind of, you know, delivery versus payment, also payment versus payment when it comes to cross-border is really massive because that's like a great potential for automation. And also, I think one of the reasons why a lot of companies that currently issue securities, digital securities, look into this and, and really like this use case. So I think that's, that's, again, the settlement and the smart contract capabilities is very important. So you would maybe, you know, put this and call this also one of the benefits of programmability. In, in this context. The other one for me is definitely the aspect of nano payments, basically. So payments you can do, which are below a specific amount of money. So let's say maybe in the sub-cent area or low-cent area, because 
for that, we don't have, to be honest, any efficient forms of money today that you can use to pay, for example, one cent to another, to another entity because it's just more expensive for somebody in the value chain mm. to, to conduct this transaction. And you don't have this with stable coins, but again here, you need to consider on which chain you are because for Ethereum, the fees are currently higher. So this more holds for other chains like maybe Polygon or also for a future version of Ethereum where the fees are brought down. At least this is what Vitalik Buterin wants to achieve. So that's more a futuristic thought. But this is something I think when you think about the industry and IoT and machine to machine and maybe autonomous cars and all this connected economy, which I'm still believing that this will come one day. So it takes longer than one thought for sure. <laughs> and maybe it's even decades away. But um, for this, I think these forms of money uh, and these are super important, even if we cannot imagine today all the use cases out there. So I think this industry use cases, so both that you can do payments below a specific threshold or a, sp a specific amount efficiently, but also the automation. So think about, you know, streaming payments. So that, for example, and this again fits well with the kind of comparison to a car. So that you, for, for example, say, you know, the car is the vehicle. It's, it's like a device and has its, its own wallet. And it sends for every minute, for example, a payment to the car manufacturer for using this or the, the government for providing the streets or whatsoever. I mean, you can think about everything. Streaming payments and this programmability, again, is also something I think can be massive in the future, even if it will take definitely years, maybe even more. I don't hope so to build this out because it's also a sector that is just, you know, not the, yeah, not the most dynamic one, I would say. Yeah, and if you spin this, this story further, you can even think about, let's say you are presented in the internet via an AI, so an, uh, any kind of agent, then your agent and my agent would pay each other for, for services or for any decisions which have been taken, which didn't involve any, any payments. So that's cool. But I agree with you. Well, we, we might call this a little bit future music, but definitely it's somewhere on the horizon. We don't know exactly how far away uh, that is. You already mentioned Ethereum and that Ethereum might not be the right chain for this because of the high transaction costs. I think that is one of the key challenges in crypto payments, right? But there are others. Can you elaborate? Maybe not on all. There might be five, six, seven challenges. Maybe if you just select the top three, what are they and, and how are they tackled at the moment? Yeah, so I would say one is definitely education, second is education, and third is education. <laughs> so I <laughs> okay. think, no, I, I will give you more, I was just kidding, but I think it's really, a, a lot is about education. So that just yeah. the companies still don't know what crypto and what blockchain is. So they just, you know, read some headlines, they are super busy, everybody, every decision maker doesn't have time, and it just takes time to go into, the, to understand crypto, to understand blockchain, to understand Bitcoin. It takes plenty of time, it takes days, weeks, months, years probably. But still, this is time which should be taken because the potentials are just so massive. So that's education. And what's done there, I think, you know, things like this podcast are great mm -hmm. in our podcast to improve education, to spread the word. I think from a political side, there is not done a lot. I mean, there's now a campaign in Germany on basically educating around Bitcoin in the German parliament, in the Bundestag, which I think is interesting from an educational perspective. But more needs to be done. And I think also public budget would be needed for that. But of course, currently not the best time to ask for budget on innovation topics because budget is spent for other things. So that's like education. Um, and then the second one for me would be reputation. So that's often in the media also crypto is just misrepresented. So like with FTX went down, you thought like crypto is dead once again. And like media wrote that 
or I, I mean, at least you had the feeling that crypto is again for criminals. It takes so much of mm -hmm. energy. So the typical things that are just not true, but they are spread across media and other outlets bringing crypto a negative reputation. And I think what can you, you do against that? Again, <laughs> education, but also having, having just more and more people going very deep to understand what it really is so that the reputation then goes better by convincing the people that this is not, not, not true, simply some statements that are made. And the third one, I think, challenge is that crypto doesn't really have a lobby. So if you think about banks today, they have a super strong lobby mm -hmm. and, and industrial companies have, but because crypto is kind of decentralized, there is no, you know, the one, the one guy uh, and the one, one association, the one stakeholder everybody wants to talk to. So you don't have a lobby and it's really challenging to fight against all this. I mean, like legacy players, right? So the players that are there for years, for decades, that also want to stay and, and keep preserve their role. And I think that's a third uh, important aspect that why this uh, crypto is not further spread. And I think here it needs like also think tanks like us around stablecoins and CBDCs to provide some kind of community for people around these important topics. I mentioned the high transaction fees or scalability issues on Ethereum, and they are obviously the layer two, the optimism, the arbitrums, and in the future, zero knowledge, knowledge proof. Do you think they sufficiently solve this scalability or transaction problem in the Ethereum universe or ecosystem? Or how do you see it? I mean, in the end, it's cheaper, but you have the same degree of trust in these solutions. How do you see this? Can you give a completely subjective opinion? Here? Yeah. Oh, that's that's super difficult to answer because we yeah. now have in the in the crypto ecosystem, of course, lots of change that that have the value proposition to be cheaper, and that's like the case that it's just you know Polygon. I mean, it's just cheaper than mm. than on being on on main main Ethereum. I mean, I personally believe in the roadmap that Ethereum has, where it also wants to bring down the costs. Of course, this takes years. We have seen with the merge, it took years. Mm. It was also super complex. I mean, it's basically the the par parallel situation made on when you are while you are driving a car you change the engine and i think mm -hmm. that's this kind of comparison is also is also true so i kind of believe in that and i'm not you know too pessimistic about that because we do have lots of different chains there if you think value, like transaction costs are the most important for you today then you go to chains where the transaction costs are lower or if you want to go into the bitcoin ecosystem you can do lightning payments with kind of zero costs so for me, it's currently not the main hurdle, but of course, also for PayPal now with being on Ethereum, it's definitely today a challenge that the transaction costs are so high. Not only PayPal's PYUSD made the headlines, but also Solana Pay. They have integrated with, with Shopify. So this allows them to serve, let's say, millions of businesses that then accept payments in USDC. How do you see this? This is another step towards mass adoption of crypto. And if it's one, if it's a smaller or it's a bigger one, or do you think this is all more of a PR stunt? <laughs> I think it's really the multiple news we are currently seeing. And I mean, you mentioned this in the intro. It's super impressive what just happened the last four, yeah. six, eight weeks in terms of stablecoin payments. Like the dynamics, it's incredible. And we can, can even add more, more initiatives. Mm. So... Uh, for me, it's hard to say, you know, if this one initiative is super promising or more or less, but it's just the, the different amounts of news, like what you said, you know, with USDC and, and SAP together, then now Visa and USDC, PayPal having an own stablecoin, Solana Pay and Shopify, and you could build on this list. So I think, and I'm, I think like mass adoption is maybe a little bit too much at this stance because we are mm -hmm. just still super, super early. 
but it's definitely a very, very, very positive sign where we are still in a bear market. We have to say where also budgets are pretty tight in, in the space generally. So definitely a very important step into the right direction. Yeah, and since they do it with Solana Pay, I mean, they at least solve the cost issue, right? So on a Solana network, I think it's 0.02.5 cents that a transaction costs. It comes with down, downsides, definitely, especially yeah, the down times. Times. <laughs> yeah, that, it's always kind of balance that you have yeah. to strike. But I think that that's also definitely a big step forward. As you rightly mentioned, a lot of things happened. It's very, it's very interesting in the last six, eight weeks. And I don't know whether they went completely unnoticed, but let's say the power of, if you add all these things together, it's, it's really massive what has happened in this space. But there can also be further hurdles. I mean, with Mika, so market and crypto regulation in the EU, I would say we have a sound and harmonized regulatory framework. There are clear guidelines in particular for private uh, stablecoin issuers. Uh, but this is not the case in, let's say, other jurisdictions, especially in the US. There's an ongoing debate and, and people were really surprised that um, PayPal is going this route in a kind of uncertain regulatory environment uh, in, in the US. How, how do you see the regulation develop and, and the impact of the regulation on crypto payments? To be honest, I was also surprised that PayPal now announced the move. And with the stablecoin, because we know for years that they are working on that. So that's not a surprise. But we do observe that in the US, the regulatory situation is just super unclear. And you mentioned like the Mika regulation in Europe. I think it's, it has also its challenges, right? But it's a very so sophisticated regulation that completely addresses stablecoins. And that's like massive in terms of regulatory certainty in this regard. For the US, we are not there yet. So Recently, just, you know, I think six bills related to crypto passed the first hurdle, which just shows like it's a lot. So there's a lot of interest now also to, to do this, but it's the first hurdle. And this takes quite a while. Then there are other elections. So I, I'm not sure when this really enters into force. So this might take a while. And even was very interesting when PayPal did the announcement the day after the Federal Reserve basically put out or the board of the Federal Reserve a statement that Oh, by the way, if you are a bank and want to do some activities like stablecoins, uh, you need to run this by our desk kind of and get an approval. So like now another entity, it, it's, so, it's, still, it's already super complicated in the US with SEC, etc. wants to have a say with that because they regulate the banks, right? So that also shows, I think it's exactly the right direction that paper wants to be regulated. It also, I think, is a good signal now that this is a topic of relevance and that regulator needs to regulate because otherwise, you know, paper just starts and does their thing until there is proper guidelines out there. And to the last part of your question, I think also it needs regulation if you think about this payment cases. I mean, often regulation is seen as a bad thing and, and maybe in some cases it's too strict, like with capital requirements, all that, but ultimately it also protects the customers. If we think about where we had some issues with Terra, Terra USD, for example, DPEX, you know, if you have a regulated entity where these funds are backed, this, this situation cannot really materialize. So I think if you are looking to use this into a, like a mainstream context, a B2B context, and also in the in integrated in our financial system, it needs to be regulated. And if you don't want to have this and are a developer and want to, you know, don't be in this realm, then you can use other stablecoins, right? So this is again about the choice, but I think there is, it's non-negotiable that you need to regulate stablecoins. I agree with you. Yeah. This is a, a payment is an existing business. I think it will not, let's say, transform into a crypto like Wild West. I, I fully agree with you. 
And now we already come to the last and so-called golden question here. It's normally a little bit challenging. I'm just asking you for your subjective view on that. We talked a lot about USD stablecoins here. In the fiat world, the euro is the second most important currency, right? After the US dollar and far ahead of the Japanese yen and the Chinese renminbi, in particular if it comes to global payments. In the crypto realm, euro-based stablecoins play a neglectable role at the moment. But I think the picture might change, right? Interest rates going up in Europe. We have Mika. What does it need to make a private euro stablecoin a success? And maybe even a little bit more specific or provocatively, does it need a large European commercial bank to launch a stablecoin? So I think what it needs to launch a successful euro stablecoin first is regulatory clarity. So we could basically put a check mark on that because we have this with the Mika. Then we also need an environment where there is like a business case for a euro stablecoin. We haven't had this in negative uh, interest environments because it would be a really bad business case <laughs> because you don't get any uh, any uh, for the money you uh, you are investing. And this is also kind of a check. So we are currently at least in this situation. And what's also very interesting, I think we didn't talk about this today, but interesting for the question, in the Mika regulation, there is also text that restricts the use and the reach of non-euro stablecoins. So this means if US dollar stablecoins reach a specific size, they really need to show a plan how to reduce this volume again. It's basically about a daily volume. So wh why am I saying that? I'm saying that because euro stablecoins by this regulation are somehow protected because the regulator doesn't want to have US dollar stablecoins um, here used, you know, on a very large scale. So this is all positive. And now coming um, actually to the core of the question, I think what it needs, it really needs, again, understanding that this makes sense. So it's again, the education. So you need the banks that think this makes sense, that you need this for settlement, that you can maybe do cross-border stuff with that. I think we are not there yet, but it's getting better and better. Um, and of course, you also need the industry that supports around use cases, right? So we talked a lot about programmability, about IoT, about machine to machine. And if, we, if there was appetite from the industry to also build out these use cases with stablecoins, then this would, of course, also accelerate this. Because you always know for a bank, it's also easier to issue a stablecoin if you have a customer that wants to do this jointly with you. Um, and I think this is some, something where we are slowly coming. We are not there yet. And I think it's really challenging to say how the, the difference will be between euro and US dollar stablecoin and when this euro stablecoin will have a market share of 5 to 10%. So I would also expect, as you said, um, Carmichael, that it's a positive environment now, positive regulation. But let's see in the end, you know, how quickly euro stablecoins will, will come up in this context. Do you think it will rather be a company like a Circle or PayPal or a bank that would jump on this bandwagon of, let's say, building out, launching a euro stablecoin? I know it's like looking into a crystal ball, but just from your gut feeling, what would you think? So, I mean, when we talk about these euro stablecoins, then this is basically, I mean, in the Mika, it's, it's, it's called e-money I mean, e token. So what you need to issue that is you need at least an e-money license. So you cannot be not regulated. So I couldn't say now I launched a euro stablecoin because I'm not regulated. So there is just the two ways of being an e-money um, institute or a full bank to do this. Um, and good question. I mean, Circle already launched a euro stablecoin with the euro coin. Mm -hmm. Didn't get the full traction yet, I would say. 
But of course, it would be more powerful if you have a bank or a consortium of different banks to issue that, because mm. then you have, again, the network size, what we talked about, PayPal. Mm. But maybe also, you know, the next thing is maybe a, a PayPal coin for, for Europe, right? Because they have all the licenses in Luxembourg for, for a bank to, to do this. And this is like a typical for PayPal. They start everything in the US and then bring it to Europe. But this might take a while. So also for the crypto offerings that they introduced a few years ago in the US, it's still not available for, the, for, for Europe. So this might be something which will not be there next year. And yeah, my feeling, my personal feeling would be that it would rather be a bank if you, you know, would like to get a, a clear answer. But crystal ball, as you said. Yeah, okay, crystal ball. So now another 10 questions on CBDCs. No, I'm, I'm Let's joking. Get... <laughs> Let's continue. <laughs> Super insightful, but I think we spare this for another uh, podcast in the future. Absolutely great talking to you. I think our listeners really, really enjoyed your insights and, and how you answer the questions here. Thank you very much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. And always happy to come back and do a session on be it crypto or CBDCs. So at a different time, I guess. <laughs> okay, cool. That's a promise. I will come back to this promise. Believe me, definitely. It was it's really amazing. Dear Thank listeners, we hope you enjoyed this talk. If you like the content, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Stay tuned and stay loyal to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise.